You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Anthony Kastrovitz, and this is our latest White Sox chat. We are joined by Scott Merkin. And Merk, man, we got a lot to unpack since we last spoke, um, not the least of which is the, the White Sox stormed back to beat the Tigers, overcame a seven-run deficit to win in 12 innings on Monday. So that was uh, good for the soul, as it were. Uh, it was also a bad night for James Shields, who put them in that early bind. I wanted to dig in on Shields here a little bit. 23 earned runs over his last three starts, one of which was, of course, with San Diego. Right. And uh, I think it was uh, Jason Stark pointing this out on Twitter with a big comparison. Jake Arrieta, who pitches, as you know, for that other Chicago team, he's right. going to have 22 earned runs in his last 25 starts. So uh, <laughs> uh, two different worlds right there, but... What is up with Shields, and, and also what positives do you take from uh, from Monday night? Because obviously the last three innings are better than the first two. Yeah, it's been crazy because, you know, the 10 starts he had before these last three, he had an ERA at 309. You know, and I realize he's pitching yeah. in a good good uh, pitcher's ballpark out in Petco, but whatever park you're in, it just seems weird, barring some sort of injury and he's, you know, he's healthy, that you would just kind of lose it in three starts. And I'm not talking about lose it like, you know, six innings, five runs, or something like that, like lose it, like, you know, get teed up like batting practice for basically two starts and then three innings, two two innings of your first start, your, your third start, I'm sorry. So, yeah, I, I I would think it's mechanics issues, you know, that he's, he's doing something wrong. Pedro Martinez actually tweeted out to him about some mechanics issues last or during his last start against Detroit. And to, to Shields' credit, he did, you know, finish strong. He got one under run in the third, which was his doing. He threw a ball away on a grounder back to the mound that should have been a double play, and then he pitched two scoreless innings to finish. The, the biggest thing I see with him is just the strikeout-to-walk ratio is terrible right now. And for a guy who's, you know, does give up home runs, but usually is a strike thrower, he seems to be all over the zone. So, again, that signals to me kind of mechanics issues, you know, with the, with the understanding that he is healthy. So, you know, he'll keep working and try and get back in it. They're certainly not – giving up on him after two starts, not even close. And, you know, the, the, the one thing about the series against Detroit is they seem to have pretty good matchups. You know, they miss Justin Verlander. They miss Michael Fulmer, who is, you know, maybe as, as good a pitcher as there is in the American League during the last, what, 30 innings he's thrown. So, you know, nothing against um, who they're facing the series, but they felt like they had a chance even down 7 nothing in that game. Nonetheless, you know, it, it's, it's a bullpen killer when you're scrimping just to get a starter to, to five innings. So he's got to be better. Yeah, and when they uh, when they acquired Shields, uh, we talked about it last week. Uh, the question was uh, Matt Latos or Miguel Gonzalez staying in the rotation, and uh, they stuck with Latos for one more start, and uh, then he gets designated. And, and man, it just makes your head spin how fast that all unraveled. Zero point seven four ERA in his first four starts, and a seven point two five ERA over his last seven. And you know, there's always underlying numbers that uh, can can be cause for concern, even when you are going as good as, as Latos was in those first four starts. But I don't think it was anything to suggest it would be this bad, and that he'd be off the team uh, by by uh, early June. No, once again, I, I felt kind of ridiculous at the beginning because you know we, I, we saw him in spring training that the writers, the rest of the writers, met TV people or whoever. And I thought, well, you know, this isn't going to last very long. I mean, he doesn't look yeah. like he can't get anyone out. He's not throwing very hard, and you know, he's not locating. And then he comes out and looks like, you know, Cy Young through what, two earned runs in his first 24 and two-thirds innings, plus not many hits. I don't remember. I think it was like six hits in his first 18 innings. And you're thinking, man, you know, this is really a veteran guy who knows what he's got to do and turns it on when he has to. And to his credit, you know, he wasn't awful 
he, he wasn't good from that point on, but, you know, it, it just was a consistency thing. And, again, the bullpen. You, know, you have to understand that they, they went hard in April because they had to have – not that they've, you know, toned it back since, but this is a team that had to have a good start. They could not be digging out of a deficit once again. So I think, you know, they used the bullpen maybe a little more in April than you usually see. And when you start having starters consistently not going deep into games, then it really starts affecting And you saw that. You saw that in, you know, the seven runs scored by Texas in the eighth inning in Texas, uh, to erase an 11-6 lead, and then the seven runs in the ninth inning against Kansas City, which, which is still more of a shocking anomaly than anything else. But the bullpen is, is a little overworked. And the thing with Latos is I think it was pretty much known that he was going to be a starter or he wasn't going to be on the team. He wasn't going to be a relief pitcher. You know, Gonzalez, they felt like, could handle that role. I don't believe they, they felt Latos would be a good guy coming out of the pen, you know, maybe working once every six days or working two out of three days in long relief. It, it just wasn't going to work. So they, they made the move, and Gonzalez has been great out of the rotation. And, you know, Latos, they don't get to that 17-8 and eight start in April without Latos. So, you know, credit to him on that, but the move had to be made. I got to tell you, Mark, I got these little notes to self here for these podcasts. I've had this one sitting here for uh, two or three weeks now. We kept getting distracted okay. by other topics. But the note said, at what it's not about the Eagles. Up, it? It's not about the Eagles. We, we get to okay. the Eagles every week somehow, but we didn't get to this one. It said, at what point do they give up on Jimmy Rollins and bring up Tim Anderson? And that moment <laughs> arrived before I could even bring it up on this podcast. It arrived last Friday. Uh, take us through that decision. Yeah, it was it was quite a busy uh, time during the draft for the White Sox. They made quite a few uh, yeah. a few changes and, and, and additions during that time. I mean, I, you know, Jimmy Rollins was not hitting the ball left hand well left handed, but he he was a good guy in the clubhouse. He was a you know a solid influence overall, and and wasn't you know terrible. Just wasn't making huge contributions offensively, and probably had lost a little bit range wise. Definitely lost a little bit range wise, shortstop wise, but. The biggest thing was Tim Anderson forced the issue. You know, Tim Anderson is there. You know, I guess you can flip a coin. I think MLB Pipeline has Carson Fulmer as the number one prospect, and Anderson was second. Either way, he's their best position player in the organization, and he forced the issue. He forced the hand, and they had to make a move. And Rollins, you know, handled as a pro as everyone expected he would. And a matter of fact, he texted Anderson afterwards, congratulated him. Anderson said, you know, the first game of the Detroit series that. Rollins has continued to talk to him and all that. So, you know, he was kind of a mentor to him in a short time when he came in in spring training and during the season. And it was, you know, not quite as much about what Jimmy Rollins wasn't doing as much as it was time for Tim Anderson to come up here and play every day. And you have to understand, Tim Anderson is the everyday shortstop. You have a very good utility guy in Tyler Saladino to, to step in wherever and whenever needed. But, you know, Anderson, they basically told him, hey, you're, it's your job, 156 or 456, whatever you're hitting. Just enjoy it. You're not the savior of this team. Just go out and play what you've been playing in Triple A Charlotte. And that was more the case, that it was just his time to, to play at the big league level. And Anderson getting some time in the leadoff spot now, so that'll be interesting to watch. I'm sure we'll talk about and, that. And that makes sense. I, I kind of thought last year, I talked. I did a story about this last year. I talked to Adam Eaton about it, that, you know, with him hitting for more power last year, he hasn't done that as much this year. And I think he drove in like 54 runs last year, which is a career high. I, I thought he would be a pretty solid number two guy. He handles the bat pretty well take advantage of the guys on first base with that hole in between first and second there. And, you know, he first game, of course, is a very, very, very small sample size. But he had four hits, five times on base, scored a couple runs, drove in a couple, including the game winner. So I think you're going to see that Anderson eating one-two punch at the top continue for uh, quite a while longer. 
Uh, in the outfield, Merck Austin Jackson is going to be out for a while with that torn left meniscus. Uh, Jason Coates and, and J.B. Shuck currently on the active roster, but I'm just wondering, does this sort of amplify the aggression in the search for outside outfield help? Yeah, you know there there is, and they you know they signed Justin Morneau uh, to a right. one year, one million dollar deal with incentives, but you know he he talked about. I think the earliest would be after the All-Star break, and the Sox seem to think more likely it's the beginning of August. But, but who knows on that timetable? Timetable. The thing is for the White Sox is, you know, their system has gotten better and should improve even more from this last draft. But you know, they don't have a lot of chips to work with if they want to continue this building up the core and not kind of going all in for one season. And then if you don't win that season, you're back to square one again. They're not trading Anderson. They're not trading Carson Fulmer. It would be, you know. Quite a trade to trade Spencer Adams, who's a right-handed pitcher, young kid, I believe 20 years old. Um, you know, he's their third-rated prospect per MLB pipeline. So, you, know, you got to see what you have to give, but you may not be able to pull off that high-end deal that you want if you want to still keep some of your prospects around. So, Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams and Jerry Reinsdorf, of course, they're going to have some juggling to do to see, you know, what they can figure out, what they can work to make something work, to make something, you know, happen that will enhance the lineup. But they're looking. I think they're also looking for another bullpen arm, too. So there's certainly that. As I've said on a couple times in this podcast, and I've written a few times, is that, you know, the White Sox kind of view the trade deadline as the, the last resort. You know, that they, they work kind of ahead of the pace. As you already see, they've added, like, you know, three guys in the last couple of weeks. So I would not be surprised if, you know, they make another move before the All-Star break. As you mentioned, Merck, uh, all this activity was going on uh, at the same time as the draft. So it was a hectic time in the White Sox front office. Uh, they had three picks in the first two rounds. They took uh, Zach Collins, a catcher from the University of Miami. They took Nick Birdie, a hard-throwing right-hander uh, from nearby Downers Grove, who uh, went to Louisville. And they took uh, Alec Hansen, a right-hander from Oklahoma, who was uh, projected to go as high as number one a year ago. Uh, so this was uh, Nick Hostetler's first draft at the helm. What did they think of their overall haul? He was thrilled, but would it be interesting if a, a scouting director came to talk to the media and said, yeah, you know, man, we really missed on that one. I, I'm not <laughs> sure we got anyone that we really liked on that one. I don't think I've ever heard that in the 15 or 16 years that I've that I've covered covered baseball, but I I think they genuinely were happy with what they had. As, as you mentioned, uh, Collins is a, could be their you know their next catcher of the future. They, they love the pop he has in his bat. They love his approach. They were looking more for baseball players this time. You know, they, they've seemed to have in the past gravitated more towards really good athletes who could also play baseball, and I think this time they're looking for baseball players who are athletic. Guys with good approach to the plate, guys who throw strikes, guys who can work a count, that kind of thing. And, you know, they, they love Collins. Nick said that was the guy they were on since the beginning of April, and they were thrilled to get him. Birdie, you know, 100-mile-an-hour thrower, had kind of a rough finish at the end of his Louisville career there, but they're really excited to have him. We talked to him the night of the draft, and he's thrilled to be part of the White Sox. And he's a guy who I would not be surprised at some point this year, assuming he gets in relatively soon, which I expect him to do, you know, could pull Chris Sale and could be up on this team by, you know, August to help out of the bullpen. He he may be the arm they're looking for. Again, not to put much pressure on a kid who, you know, just finished his college career most likely. And then Hanson they love. Like, as they said a number of times, and other people who have, you know, draft experts talked about this, that if, if the draft had taken place one year before, he probably would have been the first guy in the in the draft. So they, they like him and they feel – as the mantra goes, that Coop can fix him or Coop can help him. And they also, uh, Jamison Fisher, and I believe his name is Alex Call, Alex Call, uh, third and fourth round, the extra reversal. Call was third, Fisher was fourth, 
and they're real happy with those two guys too. They they felt like through round 15, they really got some premium talent to add to the mix, and you know they got the the three guys they wanted in the first day, and their top two guys off the board on the second day were Colin Fisher. So it was an it was an excellent draft. And Colin, interesting guy, uh, graduating in three years from Ball State, the home of David Letterman, and mm-hmm. uh, did an entrepreneurial management and had to pitch a, a business plan that was 70 pages long to a committee, and it was a pass-fail degree, basically. If they liked the plan and the plan met the muster and they answered the questions, you pass. If you don't, you have to go back next year and resubmit it, or you can get a degree in you know general business management. So a smart kid, too. If he doesn't make it as a baseball player or if after 10 years he's done playing, may end up owning the team or being a GM somewhere. Well, I'm just glad our MLB.com articles are not all pass-fail. That's a, that's a lot of pressure. We grade on a curve here. It's good. Shades of gray. All shades of gray there. I think. <laughs> you need that. Uh, all right. That's the latest on the White Sox. There was a lot there. Murky handled all well. And uh, I appreciate it. If, uh, I'm guessing the next week will be a little more quiet because how could Never it not know. be? <laughs> um, all right. I want to thank Murk for joining us. Thank you all for tuning in. This has been MLB.com Extra Chicago White Sox edition. MLB.tv Premium, the number one live streaming sports service, is celebrating 13 years. Watch every out-of-market regular season game live or on demand in true HD. Real-time highlights, live look-ins, pitch tracking widget, and more. MLB.tv Premium includes a free At-Bat 15 subscription. Watch live baseball on over 400 mobile and connected devices. Watch at home, in the office, or on the go every night on every device. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Visit MLB.tv for details.